Reality, as we experience it at least, is informed by our perception. And I'm talking about perceived reality here, not reality as a broader philosophical concept. This isn't a commentary on the is anything actually real question, but rather the question of what we know and how we think the world operates. And on that level, what we think of as real doesn't just emerge from nowhere. We have a reason to believe what we believe. In some cases, our reality is derived from first-hand experience. If you touch a hot stove, you come to know that, sometimes at least, stoves are hot. Sometimes you learn things via other people. Your parents tell you not to touch the stove because it's hot and you'll burn yourself. And in some cases, you learn through the artifacts that we've created as a species. Encyclopedias, for instance, can tell you all about stoves and can instill in you the knowledge that they are, at times, hot. Our first-hand perception can be influenced by all kinds of things, and though these are often the information-gathering experiences that we remember the most, in large part because we have all sorts of sensory information attached to the data that we learn in situ, like the smell of our burning skin from touching the hot stove, they're also very likely to be incorrect or incomplete or misinterpreted in some way. Our cognitive biases and prejudices mixed with a rich stockpile or lack of other relevant knowledge can affect how we perceive what's happening to us. And that's not even taking into account the way memory can play tricks on us, how what we believe happened can change over time as we revisit the memory and unintentionally adjust it with each revisitation, adding details that we didn't actually gather in the moment, adding context we couldn't have known, and which may or may not be legitimate, may or may not have actually happened. Secondhand knowledge, gleaned through other people, is just as likely to be flawed for those same reasons, because the people providing us with this information are susceptible to all the same downsides that we are, But there's another layer of hazards in this method of knowledge derivation because of additional variables like the intentional spread of bias, where a person will warp what they know when telling someone else about it in order to encourage that person to see the world as they do. There's also the telephone problem, where, like in a game of telephone, where a series of people will whisper a message to each other one by one, and you eventually get to see how that message was scrambled at the end of the line with that last person. As you communicate information from person to person, there's always the chance that some bit of data or some important context or added meaning will be lost in translation. Intentionally or unintentionally, then, the information can be scrambled, the original image photocopied into illegibility. Gleaning knowledge from third-party sources, from things like encyclopedias and newspapers, has all the same problems as those two other mechanisms, but it also has the added dangers of mistranslation between mediums, from verbal to written, for instance, or the reverse, data loss due to damage to the physical or digital medium, or even the intentional destruction of the medium itself, leaving us with only memories of the actual information leaving us writing tribute songs, 
to songs that we know existed but can't remember. Thankfully, many of these systems have built-in error recognition and correction systems that, in some cases at least, can note the jumbled data, the missing pixels, the mistranslated text, the added bias, the indefensible claims, and reduce the information back down to something legible, something comprehensible, something provable. This is very hit and miss, unfortunately, and by their very nature, these systems and processes are often inaccurate and not up to tackling some information damage. Further, some of these systems warp in strange ways. The integrity of journalism, for instance, has varied over the generations. And even when we have some journalistic systems that work splendidly in this regard, we have others that do more damage than good, poisoning the well of public knowledge with more disinformation than legit data, more unlabeled bias than clean, crisp facts and figures. And yet this third mechanism is still one of the more reliable means of ascertaining reality out of all the methods we have available. When you go to court and make a claim, actual human witnesses are important, but having hard, tangible evidence, like paperwork and video footage, is even better. A person, after all, is fallible, but letters on a page, pixels on a monitor, these things implicitly are more real, are more legitimate, are less likely to have some kind of unknown bias that might sway the information they provide in theory, at least. What I want to talk about today is this third group of information disseminators, the artifacts that we use to ascertain truth, to get pure data, and how historically, but also contemporarily, we're being forced to question even the most seemingly trustworthy evidence of this kind. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start from today comes from Engadget, and it's entitled Researchers Make a Surprisingly Smooth Artificial Video of Obama. This article, which is pretty short but includes a video of Obama, as mentioned in the headline, it's about research being done at the University of Washington in the field of neural network training. And a neural network in this context is a computer that's built with roughly the same setup as the human brain, meaning that it handles information in the same way. And as a result, we can actually train it to learn over time by exposing it to new information. Artificial neural networks of this kind are still quite rudimentary, so it takes a whole lot of data to train them to do much of anything. But when they're fed a sufficient amount of information, they can go on to do things that very few humans can do, or in some cases that no human can do. They have achieved heretofore theoretical high scores in classic video games. They have been able to steadily increase the effectiveness of what to watch next recommendations on video websites. They can make shipping routes more effective and efficient for fleets of delivery vehicles. And they can keep track of thousands of variables in 360 degrees of space to allow autonomous cars to drive throughout the world, mostly not hitting anything, with very few exceptions. They can also, it turns out, 
watch a video of a person and build up a library of mouth animations for that person's face, along with a library of sounds to mimic that person's voice and speech patterns, feed it enough information, in this case, 14 hours worth of Obama's weekly video addresses, and you can make a video of Obama saying anything, and that video will look and sound pretty dang realistic. So this technology is neat, and it's kind of funny and interesting. The comedic potential, I think, is fairly obvious here. But the first thing that comes to mind for me when I see something like this, now that we know this is possible, and even relatively simple compared to more labor-intensive methods, is how do we know what's real, what's true, when truth, or seeming truth, seeming reality, can be so easily and convincingly faked? If you look at this research as just part of the larger picture, and I'm talking civilizational scale here, what we know, or what we think we know, is shaped by the stories and artifacts that we inherit from those who came before us. What that means in practice is that we don't actually know what's true because history was written by those who won the war, meaning those who were able to write and publish the books, or tell the best stories, or create the most long-lasting artifacts. Those who survived, sometimes genetically, sometimes just culturally, they are the ones that write history. And either way, they passed on their memes, their units of information to the next generation. But this doesn't mean that what they passed on is what actually happened. It doesn't mean that their relation of events is true or real. It doesn't mean that what they say happened actually happened, or at least not the way that they said it did. Maybe the U.S. Civil War actually happened. But maybe it didn't. I mean, what evidence do we have that the U.S. Civil War happened? What evidence do we have that could not have been planted by people who wanted us to believe that such a war took place? I can't think of anything. There are explanations for all the evidence we have of the U.S. Civil War if we choose to believe that it was fabricated and not a real event. Now, I want to make very clear here that I do think the U.S. Civil War happened. I'm not trying to encourage belief in any bizarre conspiracy theories, though you can Google the phantom time hypothesis if you want to read about one of the more popular conspiracy theories in that particular niche. But I am saying that any discussion about reality as we perceive it is incomplete without our acknowledging that what we perceive to be true in terms of history, in terms of what happened just yesterday, or an hour or a second ago even, is largely determined by what other people tell us happened, and the evidence they can provide to back up their assertions. Without such evidence, we have nothing but their word to go on. And living in a world in which we don't know most of the people who are giving us this information, that evidence is all the more important, because we know very little, and sometimes nothing at all, about the biases, the motivations, and the legitimacy as observers of these people who are defining our sense of reality by telling us what happened. That disconcerting point made, let's talk a bit about counterfeiting. The modern world is rife with methods of counterfeiting evidence. In some cases, this means relatively antique techniques, like artificially aging paper and forging signatures. And in other cases, it means using modern technologies to create forged watermarks and printing them convincingly on forged government documents. In most cases, though, at least as far as I'm aware, 
there are means of differentiating forgeries from the real deal. I guess we can't really know for certain if we're being tricked by excellent forgeries at the moment because, well, I mean, we wouldn't. But in general, currently unknown perfect forgeries notwithstanding, you can look at a photoshopped photograph and find aberrations in pixel density, and you can tell that someone has manipulated that image. And you can hire a handwriting expert to discern the differences in curvature and pressure in a signature to get a pretty good idea of whether a signed contract has been forged. These manipulations, then, are fallible. But flawed and detectable though they may be, these fakes can still cause problems. In a recent episode of this podcast about Bitcoin, I talked about the issues that some countries, India in particular, have been having with counterfeited currency. The technologies used to make such fakes has become so sophisticated that the country had to cease producing some of the most popular denomination notes, because if they didn't, the economy would have been completely flooded with fakes and the rupee's value would have plummeted. The printing being done for real deal currency counterfeiting, especially the kind being perpetrated by foreign nations, rather than just some kid with a printer and a lot of free time, is more sophisticated than what you'd typically find off the shelf. It takes specialized inks and paper and all kinds of other significant investments to make it work on that scale. But with the proper motivation, you can create a workable counterfeit image of just about anything using relatively cheap software like Adobe Photoshop, meaning that even if you can't just print money, you could, for instance, print fake Magic the Gathering cards. Magic being a collectible card game that was the first mainstream entrant in what became a nearly $6 billion collectible card game industry. I will link to a first-hand account of what goes into counterfeiting magic cards from someone who did pretty well as a magic card forger, but this is an industry in which little pieces of cardboard can be worth $1,000, and if you have the right software chops and the right hardware on hand, and a dearth of scruples to keep you from doing things that are morally wrong, well, you can make some serious dough. So while there are safeguards in place that prevent users from printing actual money using Photoshop, safeguards that can be gotten around, but safeguards nonetheless, it is still possible to use those types of programs to produce fakes of other things, which are themselves exchangeable for cash. So it requires an extra step, but it's still kind of possible to print money in some respects, which is pretty bad news for some industries in corners of the economy, especially if you're in an industry that survives based on scarcity. Money markets rely on scarcity, as do magic card markets. Certain rare magic cards are worth what they are because of their rarity, but this is still a relatively tame outcome compared to what critics thought would happen when Photoshop originally emerged as a popular consumer-grade piece of software in the early 90s, after initially being developed in 1988 to help improve the quality of images on old-school Macintosh computers. Now, Photoshop, at its most fundamental, is still that old program from 1988. It is a raster graphics editing program. Raster graphics are images made up of little squares on a grid. Your computer, your phone, your television... All your devices that have screens on them display graphics by changing the colors 
of the little tiny squares that they display, which are called pixels. What Photoshop allowed people to do is edit those little pixels, those individual tiny squares. And on older screens, that meant editing the relatively few squares that you could see with the naked eye. There would be maybe a few hundred vertical squares and a few hundred horizontal squares going up and down and alongside each axis of the grid that makes up your screen. And you could use your Photoshop tools to change the color of those squares one by one. Over time, these tools became more sophisticated, and so did the screens. Computer monitors and TV screens came to have a thousand or more pixels on each axis. A 1080p HD screen just means that the smaller side of your screen is 1080 pixels long, while a 4K screen has somewhere in the neighborhood of 4,000 pixels on the longer of the two axes. And the tools in Photoshop evolved along with those screens to allow users to manipulate a larger number of little colored squares all at once, using paint bucket tools and copy-paste tools and selector tools and shape tools and so on. Even with a super high-resolution image, let's say a photograph, if you zoom in really close, you can still see those same little colored squares. We don't see them with the naked eye typically these days because the squares have been made very, very small on most of our devices. And there are typically millions of pixels crammed into every image that we view on these devices. But it's important to understand that even the highest-end digital photo is made up of these exact same squares. The same building blocks as the earliest digital images still exist today. Now, if you can understand that, then you can understand how Photoshop made the world in which we live today possible. Because if you can change those little squares, even below the level that we're aware of the edits, because the squares are so small and the image is so complex, then you can make anything look like anything. You can cut and paste your dog's head onto your brother's body. You can erase blotches on a model's skin. You can desaturate an image to make it more popular on Instagram. And you can, for instance, fake a photograph showing a complete array of missiles successfully firing, despite one of them actually having failed to launch. This was the case in 2008, when Iran, wanting to hide the fact that one of their missiles had failed, photoshopped an image of their missiles launching with one of the successful weapons copy-pasted so that it seemed like all the missiles had launched without a hitch. These tools, then, have allowed not just images, but our sense of reality, the artifacts that we are creating to show what actually happened, to be photoshopped. Now let's take that concept a step further. If you think about all images that are shown on screens, anywhere, and because we have printers, all images that are shown on paper or any other printable surface as well, as just huge collections of tiny squares that you can manipulate, then consider that videos moving images are just a sequence of still images shown at a high rate, usually in the neighborhood of 24 to 30 frames per second. 24 to 30 images shown to you per second. That means any movie you've ever seen is just a whole hell of a lot of images shown in a sequence so that you don't perceive the individual images. All videos, then, are also made up of these little manipulatable squares. Now, you could probably see where I'm going with this. If you can easily change a bunch of tiny squares to fake images, 
This means that you can easily change some more tiny squares to fake moving images as well. There are other ways to manipulate videos too, of course, but what's most vital for the purposes of this topic is that you understand that not only can these things be manipulated and counterfeited, but they can be manipulated and counterfeited with relative ease. Yes, most people cannot use Photoshop or the video equivalents like a professional can, but the technologies involved have become so common that there are free versions of them available. There's a program called GIMP, for instance, which is short for GNU Image Manipulation Program, that does many of the same things that Photoshop does, and it even looks similar in terms of its user interface, but it doesn't cost a cent. There weren't many barriers to entry into this world to begin with, but even those few remaining barriers have largely fallen at this point. So that's a very baseline assessment of fakery and counterfeit as it currently exists in the visual realm. But to me, it's in the realm of audio fakery, where this new software from the University of Washington really shines. There's a gap being filled in being able to convincingly edit a person's mouth and facial expressions to suit new content on the fly, but without legit-sounding audio, audio that sounds like that person, with their inflections and accent and everything else, you don't really have much more than just a weird silent film, a flip book of photoshopped images. But if you can manipulate the fundamental structures of audio as well, in the same way that you manipulated all those little squares for the images and video, and if you can do it convincingly, the same way that a highly skilled photoshopper can make us believe that the models on the covers of all those fashion magazines actually look like that, then you've got something fairly groundbreaking. And even more so if you can do it all just by feeding examples of that person that you want to mimic into a neural network. And that's what this project at the University of Washington claims to do. And it's what a few other in-development projects, like Adobe's Voco software, purport to do as well. Now, a few caveats about those claims. First, this technology is anything but fully baked at the moment. And a lot of the response to it that I've been seeing around the internet, from people who use audio editing software professionally, is that it is a neat gimmick but not terribly useful quite yet. Someday it will likely evolve into something useful for special effects studios to use in film production, and maybe for app developers to use as novelties, a bit like the face overlays that you can find in Snapchat and Instagram. But for the moment, this is all more of a proof of concept than anything else. Useful primarily for those researchers to attract more grants, and for Adobe to promote their other product, Photoshop by getting people to call this technology the Photoshop for audio before it can be publicly branded as anything else. Second, this is technology that has existed for quite some time, just not in this specific form. The techniques being used in this new iteration are impressive, because you can essentially just feed the program certain types of footage and audio, and it makes something new, based on the raw materials that you provided. But in the past, you could do the same thing. It's always just been a lot more time and effort intensive until now. And even this method has likely been around, we just haven't known what to look for. A commenter on Hacker News, which is a message board for developers and other people loosely tied to the tech industry, said it pretty well, I think. Quote, 
If this technology is being made available to consumers now, that means it's existed before now, probably for years, outside of the public's awareness. Makes you think, what's been faked in the last year or two that we didn't know could be faked? End quote. Now, I would stipulate that this, as well, is not a call for conspiracy theories, but rather an acknowledgement that there's a lot of industrial strength tech wizardry out there that we have no reason to know about. Things that are used to create movie magic and to keep the lights on at great big studios, and which specialists know about. But these tools are generally not secretive in the same way that, for instance, creating a fake politician who only exists as a special effect on a screen would be secretive. I wouldn't say that something like that is entirely technologically infeasible, but I don't think we have any reason to believe that this tech is currently being used for anything malicious of that nature. If it is currently being used, it's probably to help create more realistic CGI for movies and video games. That said, I do think it's generally a safe bet to assume that if you can imagine it, and if it falls within the realm of current practical reality in terms of physics and such, even if it seems too complex or expensive to actually make happen, it has probably happened at some point for some purpose. This may not always be the case, and you shouldn't live your life afraid of shadowy government operatives faking videos of you saying stupid things, but it's a good rule of thumb because historically, it seems to have been the case with somewhat ridiculous frequency, even with technologies that seemed wildly infeasible at the time that they were actually being researched and utilized. Many high-level technologies simply would not be able to make it to market without government or high-end corporate investment somewhere along the way. And those investments aren't made just for the sake of inventing neat things. Someone's behind-the-scenes needs lead to funding, and the end result of that funding eventually becomes something the public is aware of and potentially has access to. And in modern times, what typically happens next is that cool thing becomes an app feature, and eventually everybody falls in love with it before becoming incredibly bored by it. Let's step back from that line of thought and add a little additional context to this topic. Context that, I think, pours some cold water on the idea that this is some groundbreaking, game-changing technological development. Consider that when you take a photograph, you frame that photograph in a specific way. That's the nature of a photograph. You have to fit whatever you want to capture in that little window, that tiny compositional space. You might be looking at the Eiffel Tower, but you'll take a different photo from every other person who's ever photographed it before you. The conditions in the area will be different, but your composition is also different, as is the camera that you're using and the condition of that camera and the type of film, the quality of the light sensor on the camera, the dust on the lens. Everything about the way that you take the photo alters it in some way makes it unique. Even if that uniqueness might not be immediately evident while looking at all the similar seeming photos of the Eiffel Tower that you can find on the internet, it's still unique even if the differences are only noticeable down at the pixel level. This is true when it comes to other media as well. When you shoot a video, you're choosing a composition. Your recording software and the hardware running it alter that video, and when we press the record button, the beginning and end points, that shapes what we see as well. This can all influence what we believe happened. It can change the way we perceive history. 
Maybe recent history, but history nonetheless. Our reality is partially defined by little things like the height from which a photo was taken or the duration of a video clip. In journalistic terms, or in terms of footage used as evidence at a trial, these differences can mean everything. The right photo taken from the right angle, processed in the right way, can make it seem that something very different from what actually happened, happened. The same is true of video and audio, and that's before we bring any post-processing or editing into the mix. The way we produce these media already presents opportunities to accidentally or intentionally frame and portray something that happened in different ways. History can be shaped by the height of a photographer or a mote of dust on a camera lens. These new neural net-driven technologies, then, are merely extensions of that existing capability. As our Photoshop tools grow in number and power, we have the ability to, for instance, more easily select just the background of a photo while leaving the person that we're photographing untouched, which makes it easier to make it seem as if that person, for instance, is not running a marathon, but running from a T-Rex. But skilled photographers and videographers have long had such capabilities. These capabilities are just becoming more attainable to more people now, and becoming more potent consistently over time. So that is another way of looking at all of this, that it's an interesting development, these neural network programs that can help us edit video and audio, but it's not a complete parallax shift. It does not radically change things. It's just a change in scope and scale. Now, I would add that being hit across the face with a dandelion and being hit across the face with a hammer are also kind of the same thing. And the difference is, again, only in the scope and scale of the object that you're being hit with. But I think most people would agree that such a difference is still a fairly important one, for the person being hit, anyway. At a certain point, increases in scope and scale can result in a parallax shift. It's just incredibly difficult to determine when that point is reached along a continuum of development. At what specific weight and density does an object that you're being hit across the face with cease to be funny and become something quite dangerous, or even deadly? At what point do the tools we use to edit the evidence that helps us establish a shared sense of reality become something more serious than just fun or interesting gimmicks? At the moment, these technologies are still just novelties. But the security concerns are already bubbling to the surface, as are concerns from journalists who fear that they'll no longer be able to trust evidence of any kind when reporting on a story. Today, a reporter who's trying to ascertain the truth can generally rely on recordings of discussions between figures with recognizable voices and can submit those recordings to experts who can give them a measure of certainty that the person speaking is the person they're reporting on. If these voice and video counterfeiting technologies become commonly utilized, however, who's to say where that recording came from and if it's legitimate? And might we see hackers cutting their way into a New York Times reporter's Dropbox account and editing the audio of an interview that they conducted themselves? Will they even be able to trust the media that they themselves created, that they recorded, the artifacts of their own experiences? knowing that those artifacts could have been edited without their knowledge? 
Someone with this technology could substantially undermine the credibility of people who report on the truth by polluting their evidence with forgeries. A single news story reported using faulty evidence of this kind could kill a journalist's career, especially if the story in question has particularly high stakes. We could be on the verge of cresting a new horizon here. And on the other side of that horizon, we will need new methods, new systems, and tools to differentiate real from fake, truth from clever, legitimate-looking fiction. The fake news connection is a somewhat obvious one here, and something that I'm becoming increasingly concerned about. Even with security mechanisms in place, with some kind of watermark or other metadata that helps media pros distinguish true recordings from fake recordings, assuming these safeguards work, and that's anything but certain, but assuming that they did work, how likely is the general public to be able to tell the difference? I mean, especially at first, when all this is new, when the first big story emerges with these technologies at the center of it, there are going to be breathless reports about how we can't trust anything or anyone anymore. Any new piece of evidence that's inconvenient to someone will be called a fake, and it will be tricky to prove to the satisfaction of the public that that's not the case. Conspiracy theorists will be working their way through every audio clip and video from the past several years, trying to figure out which statement is a forgery, which awkward clip of their politician of choice is a clear fake posted by the opposition, which historical event was obviously just a convenient fiction that allowed the Illuminati to conceal the faking of the moon landing or something. Maybe the Illuminati won't come into it, but isn't it easy to imagine that kind of frantic backtracking and confusion when the first non-watermarked, non-metadata-identified product of this software is mistaken for real video? A politician spewing hate? A celebrity criticizing the movie that they were in? Maybe someone will declare war or say something else incredibly dangerous? Something that actually raises the stakes in the real world? destroys markets, causes deaths. If it's cleverly done, it will probably seem to be real in that it will seem to have been captured accidentally, rather than being a front-facing Trump looking into the camera and declaring war on China. It'll seem to be a recording caught on a hot mic after an interview, and it'll seem all too real. And just as today, when false information is published, the scramble to show that this footage was faked will be intense, and will very likely broadly fail. Even now, without this technology coming into the mix, the majority of people never see, or in some cases just don't believe, the retractions of fake or flawed news coverage that is presented to the public. And that means troops will be rallied and official statements will be made before the majority of people who read that first story that turned out to be flawed can be reached with a retraction and convinced of its legitimacy. Something really serious could happen in the time between the fake evidence landing and new evidence of that falsehood of the first piece of evidence reaching the right people in the right way. On the other hand, maybe none of this will happen. When Photoshop first came out, there was a panic, and one that seemed to be completely understandable, in a time in which most certification and legitimization was sealed with signatures and text and fingerprints, when we still used cash for the majority of our transactions, and along came this new piece of consumer-grade software that could easily fake all of these things. And nothing really came of that panic. 
Nothing, that is, except an upgrade to all of our currencies, including new watermarks and holograms and special materials that can't be easily forged. The same security elements were added to other paper trail-related aspects of society. So although you can Photoshop a fingerprint, the materials surrounding that print, the watermarks applied by the scanners, the paper upon which the print is placed and which is then archived, the ink itself, these are all far more difficult to fake, requiring substantially more expense and expertise to fool a pro who's paying attention. It's very possible, and I would like to think, though I can't say that with any conviction quite yet, that the same will happen here in this case. Safeguards will be developed, and although some cunning conmen and tricksters and criminals will make use of that gap between the new technology becoming available and the safeguards being refined and widely utilized, the worst of these bad possibilities will hopefully be taken off the table before anyone lights a really serious fuse. Alongside that, hopefully at least, we will all also become increasingly media savvy, savvy enough to recognize when we are being misled and hustled so that we know what to look for. I wanted to talk about this emerging technology and the technologies that surround it because they also force a conversation about the uncomfortable subject of trust. And I say this subject is uncomfortable because right now, at this moment in time, trust has deteriorated to a point where the line between prudent skepticism and outright gullibility has become so thin and permeable that it's difficult to know when you are cleverly seeing through the wool pulled over your eyes and when you're merely seeing a cloth-veiled reality that simply isn't there, that is, the product of your own imagination or someone else's. We should not just trust blindly, but we also need a baseline of reality to work from, a shared set of facts that we can generally rely upon until such a point that any of those facts are disproven, at which point we then need a means of updating our shared library of information so that we are, again, working from the same correct notes. This doesn't mean that we will all see things the same way or have the same interpretation of those facts. Facts are data, and data can be interpreted in an infinite number of ways. And that's good. If we ever all agree on politics, that wouldn't be very good for our system of governance. We need differing points of view, as frustrating as that can be in practice sometimes. But data is weaker when we have differing views on what's real and what's fake. Meaning, if one person says the atomic number of hydrogen is one, and another person says, no way, man, the atomic number of hydrogen is two, fake news, we have a real problem. This will impact all the hydrogen-related science we do, and will make it difficult to work together, because we're working from different sets of facts. Now, in this case, it's easy enough to just say that guy number two in this example is simply wrong. Look it up. Hydrogen is first on the elemental table. Its atomic number is one. That's just reality. But if guy number two doesn't trust that reality, thinks that the elemental chart is bogus or a conspiracy by big science to sell us more hydrogens, then we have to figure out where he's getting his quote-unquote facts. In many cases, this will be true believers running conspiracy blogs, and in others, it will be well-orchestrated hit jobs by personalities or networks with a vested interest in casting doubt upon the concept of science, or the concept of reality as a whole. 
In other cases, it will simply be a misunderstanding. We may be able to develop a tag of some kind, which designates bits of data as true, as supported by evidence, and which then allows you to easily trace that data backwards to see that evidence and receive interpretations of it in the cases when it's something like a waveform or pixel analysis that requires a professional eye to see the difference between real and fake. I think making that information widely available and easy to find would be a step in the right direction. That type of system might look something like Wikipedia looks today, but with a more official governing body that would help legitimize truthful data and tile those pieces of data together, making it accessible and referenceable. But it would also require that we're able to take those pieces of data and spread them around so anybody who wants to share a bit of knowledge can use some type of information card or some other chunk of data that they provide for the world to use, something that's easy to rework into other media. Now, there are concrete facts that we can demonstrate, like the atomic number of hydrogen, and we'd need to figure out how to show that kind of data compared to the facts that are a little less concrete, like, for example, saying that a particular celebrity's favorite ice cream is Rocky Road. One is a demonstrable fact, but the other is still kind of a fact that we have little reason to disbelieve if the celebrity, his or herself, has said it in an interview somewhere. But these are still very different types of information, both because the reporter in the second case could have published something inaccurate, or the celebrity could have misspoken, or maybe their preference simply changed since that interview was conducted. And any system that we set up will need to take that into account. There have been rumblings in certain communities about using something like the blockchain to keep this type of information available, accessible and organized and public along with any changes that are made to this body of data over time. I spoke about the blockchain in a past episode about Bitcoin, but the quick summary is that it is a system that houses information completely in public, and anyone at any time can see all of the transactions and changes to those documents, from the very beginning until today, chronologically. So this could mean, again, using Wikipedia as an example, as it's the best current-day analog that we have for this, I think, it would mean all that information housed in public, available and referenceable for all. And we could see when a piece of information is changed on the page for, let's say, hydrogen. If we discover something new about hydrogen and the document we have going for hydrogen needs to be changed, those changes will still be visible over time in every location that has utilized that chunk of data and pulled it from this central authority. And we'll be able to see exactly who made those changes, and we could conceivably then weed out any bias if we need to at any point in the future. But bare minimum, any location that references hydrogen will then have those updates as they are made to that central collection of data. We are going to need reliable and varied filters if we're going to continue to have a shared basis of reality. A set of facts that we can all go back to and agree on, at least until more, better data becomes available. This is how journalism should function, and has been functioning recently, though it hasn't always and it doesn't universally. There's still a lot of infotainment-style journalism out there, and although there's nothing inherently wrong with that, we're going to need to get back to both independently being able to distinguish between the two, between pure sources of information and those that are presenting information as entertainment, and societally 
understanding that one does trump the other when it comes to shaping our worldview. So it's our own personal responsibility to be able to differentiate, but I think we also need social standards that recognize that certain types of journalism are more likely to present legitimate facts than other types of journalism. I am guessing that we will see an increase in people who train specifically to parse the false from the legitimate when it comes to evidence and news. And we're already kind of seeing the early days of this with the focus on fake news spotting and political lie trackers from certain institutions. But these will need to evolve because they still haven't been able to demonstrate why they should be trusted more than the alternative sources of facts to the public, people who are not journalists, people who don't understand why they should trust these institutions above and beyond their local gossip rag. We're at a point where people simply don't trust scientists when it comes to science. So some new approach is necessary because the concept of doubt in this regard has gone more than a little haywire and in large part due to its increasing utilization as a tool of political division. So this is not something that's likely to simply go away on its own. I would be interested to see a profession full of people whose entire trade is looking at stories that are being talked about and reported on and demystifying them, showing who is shaping which headline, who's pushing which perspective, who is trying to target which group, what tactics they're using, and why, where their paychecks are coming from, whose ambitions are being forwarded when they use that particular phrase, and so on. Something like this is really important, I think, because it would allow us to have access to contextual reporting of the largely opaque processes behind the news and the information that feeds into the larger pool of data from which we derive our facts and thereby derive our realities. The book that I would like to recommend today is called Ready Player One by author Ernest Klein. And I will say that this book is a page turner. It's not a difficult read. It's not particularly cumbersome. It's not even ridiculously deep in any substantial way, but it is interesting. It presents some really compelling concepts. It gives a look into a few what-if scenarios for the near future. And the setting for this book is the year 2044 in kind of a post-fossil fuel crash world. The world's governments didn't convert over to renewable resources quickly enough. So when the crash happened, when oil and coal and everything else peaked, they were caught flat-footed. And this resulted in significant climate-related issues and economic issues, and the world is kind of a shadow of what it once was. And as tends to be the case when everything goes sideways, people turned to entertainment. There's not a whole lot to do, not a whole lot of jobs, not a whole lot of money, not a whole lot to strive for. But there is an immersive virtual reality experience. It's kind of a game, but it's kind of a community called Oasis, which allows anyone with virtual reality goggles and gloves to jump into this virtual world, which is very complete and interconnected with everyone on the planet, and engage with that world in a very real way. It has things like haptic feedback, meaning that you can feel what actually happens within the game. And the plot 
pivots around something that the creator of this network, Oasis, did before he died. He created an Easter egg within the game, meaning kind of a a secret that would be very difficult to find. You have to do very specific things to find it. And he told the world about this Easter egg in his will. And also outlined in that will is that anyone who finds this Easter egg in Oasis will inherit his entire fortune. And this book takes place about five years after that announcement, when a kid from the slums discovers a key, one of three keys, that are meant to point people toward this Easter egg. And things get very real very quickly. It is at times a hilarious book and a lot of fun. There's a lot of nostalgia for the 80s and 90s in this book. There are a lot of book and fantasy and video game and D&D references. It's a whole lot of geek-tastic fun, but it's also something that I think will have a whole lot of mainstream success. It did. It was a bestseller, but it's also being turned into a movie that is directed by Steven Spielberg that will be released in 2018. So I'm guessing that most people will enjoy it, even if you are not a total geek. The book again is Ready Player One by Ernest Klein. It is a good, fun read. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsnotethings.com. Feel free to reach out to me and say hello. On pretty much every social network, you can find me at Colin is my name. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.